This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. So among our COVID headlines, we have uh, India talking about some of the cases of the Delta plus COVID-19 variant. They're finding that across 11 states. Authorities saying it's too early to tell whether it poses a significant threat. Meantime, New Jersey had zero in-hospital coronavirus deaths Thursday, yesterday, for the first time since July. Let's get right into it with Dr. Kevin Tracy, president and CEO of the Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research. He's joining us on the phone from Greenwich, Connecticut. Dr. Tracy, really great to have you on the show. How are you doing? Very well. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. How do you feel about about where we are, not as the United States, but but as the world when it comes to this pandemic? Because uh, there are two starkly different stories playing out right now. There are. I think there's a story of the countries that are are vaccinated or moving towards vaccination and the countries that are at small numbers of vaccination. And those are two different stories. Well, to that point... Go ahead. Uh, the, story of the, the story of the vaccination, as you, as you implied, is an incredible success. In fact, in my view, in the history of medicine, this will go down as a milestone up there with the cholera pump, the mm-hmm. creating epidemiology, and the, and the invention of vaccines and, and the germ theory of disease by, uh, by Lister and Pasteur. I think history will look back at the fact that a, that a pandemic occurred, and within a year the virus was identified, a vaccine was made, and within a year and a half, millions of people were vaccinated and protected. And the success of the vaccine continues because once people have been vaccinated, they're not going to the hospital. The people who who are in the hospital now, and it's a very small number in the United States, thankfully, but the people in the hospital now overwhelmingly were not vaccinated. But the, the issue is and remains to be, and I wonder for how long it will be. I mean, I was talking to a, a colleague of mine with uh, from another country whose family is, is in another country, and they have no access to vaccine. They were supposed to get J&J vaccine. That was spoiled. AstraZeneca was supposed to get there, but nobody wants to take it because they're concerned about blood clots. So, so how does this play out outside of the United States, outside of the U.K.? I think, I think that's an incredibly important question. I don't have a great answer for you. I mean, you have countries that invested heavily and, and bet on vaccines that were not yet, in, not yet invented or made, and now those vaccines are being produced and distributed. You have countries who didn't have the resources to do that, and now they uh, are waiting and hoping that something will happen. And then you have countries that that invested in vaccines and problems happen with manufacturing. You know, it's sometimes hard to remember that this virus still hasn't had its second birthday. And when you move Mm -hmm. into research and development, you know, one of my favorite, favorite definitions of research is by Albert Einstein, who said famously, if we knew what it was we were doing, it wouldn't be called research, would it? So when, when you put into context the fact that you're facing a great unknown and, that not, and, that, and you have issues not only of inventing the vaccine and manufacturing it for the first time, but then assuring it's safe for millions, if not hundreds of millions of people, and then the logistics of giving it out to countries rich and poor, it's, 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 a huge, it's going to be a huge lift for another year or two at least. Yeah, it feels that way. So if it is a huge lift for another year or two, as we've all reminded everyone that it is a global pandemic and not until it's under control globally are we really out of it. So what 
What's the scenario over the next 12 to four, uh, 24 months? Well, I, I, think, I think the human race is, is famous for collaborating to solve problems, and I think we did also see a lot of that as a good news story in the last 18 months. And I think we're going to see renewed collaboration by many countries to solve the, the, the countries that are really suffering now. And, and, and I, think, I think you're seeing that. I think the United States is stepping up and, and providing vaccines where it can, and other countries are doing the same thing. I think you're going to see collaboration to help the countries that can't help themselves as well. I also think you're going to see significant continued investments in science in the United States, which are absolutely critical, and in Europe and in other countries. And these investments are critical because even if you were to vaccinate everybody immediately, the virus is still going to be around for a while. And we're going to need to invest in therapies that treat the virus for people who either haven't been vaccinated or for those small number of cases that do get infected after they've been vaccinated. And and President Biden has proposed and seems to have significant support for this across, across both parties to spend more money on science. And I think that's crucial as a national security effort for the United States. So what is the United... Go, go ahead, Carol. Well, I was just thinking about the story that we talked about, the athletes. Yeah, I was thinking about that too. You know, vaccinated athletes are testing positive for the coronavirus. How are we supposed to, when we hear a headline like that, as people, for many of us who've been vaccinated, like, should we still be worried? Should we be concerned? I don't know. How do you interpret that? Well, I, I, I can't... I interpret it from my. I can't. I can't. I can't reassure everyone how they should feel about this. This mm. is new for everybody. But I can tell you how I feel about it, which is what you asked me. And how I feel is that look, I, I'm a scientist, and I look at the numbers. And when you look at the people in the hospital today with COVID, they weren't vaccinated. It's 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 the vaccine. What does that mean? That means the vaccine that you got in your arm will keep you out of the hospital. Now, if you get COVID and don't go to the hospital, okay, you, you got COVID. Mm-hmm. And, but, but what, what you worry about with COVID is, is having a cytokine storm and going in the ICU in the hospital. The vaccine is, is preventing that. So I, I'm quite optimistic that everybody should be vaccinated because the vaccine keeps people out of the hospital. And that's really what you worry about. I think that the story of the athletes getting it, I think the New York Yankees, a bunch of them tested yeah. positive a couple of weeks ago. You know, that, that is the, that's going to be the story for some time. And so I think the, the discussion has to be that we need to continue to invest heavily in research and heavily in science because that will provide answers like Tamiflu and maybe some other pills that right. people can take when they get COVID and keep them out of the hospital. Maybe even people who haven't been vaccinated will have medicines available. We want to talk more about that. And we definitely see commercial real estate investment going into kind of labs and life sciences, right? Life sciences. So we certainly see that in play. We're going to come back to Dr. Kevin Tracy, president and CEO at Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research. We'll get back to that in just a moment right here on Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. I want to get right back to our guest, still with us, Dr. Kevin Tracy, President and CEO at Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research. It's the research arm of Northwell Health, which is the largest healthcare provider and private employer in New York State. They have been with the virus and vaccine really from day one. He is also a professor of molecular medicine and neurosurgery. He joins us uh, from Greenwich, Connecticut. That's where we still find him. So, Dr. Tracy, what do we need to see healthcare institutions, the government, uh, R&D efforts, what do, we see, what do we need to see happening right now so that we are planning and getting ready for the next uh, virus that impacts society? We need to plan and get ready for the next virus. <laughs> it, well said. It will come. 
this one was this one was predicted by many and ignored by most, and that that re- that mistake should not be repeated. And the solution really comes from investment uh, into research and development of, as you said in the introduction, into that continued vaccine development, but also to continue to invest in drugs to treat uh, the disease that are separate from the vaccine. So, so what, what most people don't realize about research is that um, the, there's, the, work, the work goes on for decades before it can be moved into usefulness. And the, and the movement, and so the research identifies the targets and develops the drugs, and that can go on for decades. And then it has to be developed. And the development can take years and years and years. So, so people, you know, get, get used to their iPhones and they get used to their Androids and they get used to their watches and their Fitbits. The, these things are engineering. They're not medicine. They're not biology. They're, they're not alive. The, the living systems that are required to make drugs and vaccines can't be quickly engineered. It takes, it takes time and, and work. And, and the way, to, the way to, to prepare for the future is to invest in that work now. Is it something that the government needs to be involved in? Absolutely, because the profit doesn't come for decades. So the, the government historically, and the, the governments historically across the world, are the main funders for the science that goes on to look up the alley to see if it's blind. Discoveries come with no profit. Discoveries come from, from hard work and heavy investment. But once the discoveries are made, as in the case of the, of, the new, of the new vaccines for COVID, the mRNA vaccines, these things were being worked on by people sort of quietly 25 years ago when most of their peers of these scientists were famously telling them they were going to fail, that it couldn't be possible. 25 years ago, think about that. Think what you were doing 25 years ago. Well, somebody... <laughs> was making investments in, in these individuals in the hope that maybe they were right. And thank goodness they did. It is difficult, though, for publicly held companies, right, when they are thinking about their R&D efforts, that, you know, there can be a lot of moonshots or they throw things out there that never come to be. So how do we guarantee, I mean, how much does government have to backstop all of this in order for it to happen? Because we've had lots of conversations here at Bloomberg about we know what the next handful of uh, lethal viral uh, problems that are out there. We've got the vaccine hunters or virus hunters that are out there finding them. So we kind of know what we need to go after. So how do we make sure it gets done again? It, does it have to be from the government? The research has to be from the government. Uh, okay. It's a simple fact that as of today, I looked recently, there's something like 8,000 drugs being developed by the pharmaceutical industry and the biotechnology companies as we speak. 8,000 drugs. More than 95% of them were invented in laboratories like mine and my colleagues, not-for-profit laboratories. And, and, and those laboratories and those universities and those medical schools are funded by the government. So the, the inventing work and the research that underlies the drugs you take for granted today came out of not-for-profit laboratories. That is the system that, that works. That's the system that's been in place for decades. And that's the system in not just the United States, but in the countries that invent new drugs, mm-hmm. including China, including the UK, including most of the EU, including Israel and the United States and Japan. That's how it works. Well, it's interesting. You know, we talk about industrial races or we call about, you know, kind of the new tech war that's going on globally, especially between maybe the chi- between China and the rest of the world. Do you see a war, kind of a, a race here to get the next best, you know, when it comes to 
virus treatments, vaccine treatments? I mean, are we going to see a little bit of a, a war because of that? I don't think we're going to see a war because of that. I think that um, scientists uh, are, are actually more collaborative than competitive. They compete with themselves more than with each other. Mm-hmm. They're, in, they're, they're competing with themselves to make the best discovery that will be the most useful to the most people. Companies compete to develop things faster. Development, I'm not minimizing development. Development is extraordinarily expensive. That's the process of taking the molecules from the laboratory, testing them in human beings, looking to see if they work, manufacturing them and selling them. So that can take years. So so the research process in the laboratory is very competitive in the sense that people want to do the best that they can do. The, the financial competition comes at the other end when you move into development and sales. And I, and I think in the case of this vaccine, I think you had countries placing huge orders on vaccines that hadn't been invented yet. Right. And I think that sort of answers your question. Hey, Dr. Tracy, mm-hmm. just in the last 30 seconds that we have 20 seconds, what about when it comes to <clears throat> things other than um, vaccines for the next pandemic? I'm thinking PPE and the way that we weren't prepared with ventilators, PPE and more. 20 seconds. Well, I think there's a call, it was a call to action uh, that we need to be better prepared, not just for vaccines, but for new therapies that will treat the virus in patients that haven't been vaccinated. And we have to be better prepared with, with the infrastructure, mm-hmm. including things like PPE and ventilators. You know, there were stockpiles. There were stockpiles created after SARS-1, and they were depleted right. by hurricanes and other things. We need to revisit how we maintain our stockpiles. All right, good stuff. Thank you so much. Uh, and really just a very thoughtful and truthful conversation about what we need to be planning for. That's Dr. Kevin Tracy, President and CEO of Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. We've been talking a lot about infrastructure, rightfully so, after President Biden getting a little bit of a win there yesterday uh, with the hard infrastructure component of the massive spending that he's looking to do in this country, Tim. Joining us now is Jonathan Bernstein, politics columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us now on the phone from San Antonio. Jonathan, great to have you on the show. Uh, Reading your Bloomberg Opinion column from early this morning, I'm glad you're not the only one who thinks that this is a very weird process, though you write that it's produced a pretty clever solution. Take us into the process and uh, why it's so nuanced. Well, the problem is that there's so many different goals that different people have. So that, you know, with the Democrats having a very narrow majority in both houses, what they need to keep everybody on board. And there are, you know, people, AOC and other Democrats, uh, Elizabeth Warren, who want to spend uh, huge amounts of money. And then there's people like uh, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who care not so much about how much is spent, and they want to spend money too, but they care about getting bipartisanship done because, you know, Joe Manchin comes from a very Republican state and he wants to be able to say, aha, I was able to make a difference um, with a bipartisan bill. So what they wound up doing is this seemingly convoluted two-bill track, uh, double-track situation which is a pretty good, clever situation, uh, solution to the problem, I think. Well, and I do wonder, you know, what's going on on both sides of the aisle, because, yeah, midterms are just around the, the bend. And wouldn't it be nice, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, to go home and say, look what I got for our state? Exactly. And, you know, one of the things that's really a huge change in politics now versus, say, 40 or 50 years ago, it used to be that the out party would be, would be very pleased to say, look, we got this project, that project, and the other project, and they could run on that. Because we have so much partisan polarization these days, um, it turns out that, what, that it's hard to sell that to 
your district, and Republicans in particular have sort of stopped trying. All they want to run on is partisanship. So for a lot of Republicans, they'd rather bash Joe Biden and call him you know, a socialist or whatever it is than get uh, concrete gains for their districts they can brag about. Hmm. To that end, though, I mean, it, it, does it seem like, you know, a few months into the Biden presidency, in, ahead of midterm elections, he's actually making good on, on at least some of what he campaigned on, despite oh, Republican resistance? Yeah, yeah I, you know, we, we have a long way to go on infrastructure still. Um, but it certainly it seems to be moving towards some sort of solution that's going to at least get some of what he asked for. And of course, he had the huge uh, relief bill right at the beginning. He's you know, doing some other things. So, yeah, I think that overall Biden's off to a reasonably good start legislatively. Again, given that it's a 50 Democrat Senate, 50, uh, you know, just barely majority in the House. So getting this stuff passed is not easy. Well, and it's interesting. Do you feel like, Jonathan, as you see this, observe it, hear the conversations that come out, that there's something to President Biden saying, hey, I spent a long time in those halls, those hallowed halls of Congress. I kind of get how this works. I think it helps. I think the other thing that helps, you know, we, we do a lot of bashing of the Democratic leadership in both the chambers for being very old. Um, <laughs> but they're both old and they're experienced. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi knows what she's doing. Um, Chuck Schumer seems to perhaps, he's newer at the job, but I think, you know, fairly good results so far. And particularly, you know, having Pelosi... Uh, figure this stuff out and keep her caucus on board together right. is really a huge advantage. So less maybe Biden than uh, what's going on the Hill, although I think it also helps that Biden has a very, I mean, he's experienced and he has a very experienced, solid team uh, working on legislation. Jonathan, I do think about our audience, the Bloomberg audience, because we've already seen financial markets kind of playing on the optimism, finally, that we could get something done when it comes to infrastructure. We've talked about it for so many years. The private sector is salivating because they have tons of funds ready to put to work. How should our audience see it, though, about what likely happens from here? Because I've heard this morning on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg TV that, hey, folks, we still have a bunch of steps to go before this gets done. There absolutely are. In particular, the deal bill, the bipartisan bill, still needs to find five more Republicans, even if it holds the five Republicans who signed off on the deal. Uh, there's no guarantee that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. However, if it doesn't happen, there's a pretty good chance that Manchin and uh, Cinema from Arizona are satisfied at having sort of made the motions of bipartisanship and probably will sign off on some sort of deal. But that still means they have to even if they get the bipartisan deal, they still have to negotiate the other deal where, you know, Democrats have different preferences. And, um, you know, Joe Manchin has very different preferences of how much to spend and what to spend it on than does Bernie Sanders. Um, I think there's a pretty good chance that'll all come together for what they're calling the reconciliation bill, the bill that will only need the 50 Democrats to agree. But, yeah, there's no guarantee that's going to happen. So what does this all mean for the, the human infrastructure portion of this and the, what the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party is looking for? Yeah, and I, I wouldn't limit it to the more progressive wing. I think there's a lot of Democrats who want uh, that kind of spending. Um, it's, you know, they've, we've got the permission. They've got the permission from Biden and Cinema to go ahead and start negotiating it. That's a big deal. Um, you know, they're okay with doing that portion of it through reconciliation. So the next step is actually negotiating. They haven't started yet. 
So, you know, we don't really know what the roadblocks will be and what the arguments will be in a situation where any one of 50 senators can bring it to a halt and any half dozen of 220, whatever it is, uh, members of the House can bring it to a halt. Jonathan, I keep thinking about, you know, bipartisanship and, you know, (laughs) both sides of the aisle actually coming together on something. And I do think about the American public who got so sick and tired of the two sides just going to their corners and not talking with one another. Is that also kind of on members of Congress, their radar as they, they move through this process? I think, you know, for somebody like Joe Manchin, for somebody like Susan Collins, a Maine Republican from Maine, it's very much on their radar. Uh, Whether it makes a difference down the road in the elections for most members, I think it doesn't, and I don't think they care that much about it. So, you know, I think Biden certainly promised to have an open ear to try to work with everybody, and so he's, you know, fulfilling that promise by at least trying to do a bipartisan bill. But I think, you know, most people think now for elections, what really matters are the ultimate results, not just from what bill they pass, but how it affects the overall economy going forward. Is, is, and is that something that can infrastructure is something that takes a long time to actually see the effects of it? And I think that's why it's been difficult for a lot of politicians, especially local politicians, uh, to to really push because this is the type of thing that, that you know, a, a large tunnel that gets built, right, is, is not something right. that you see during your tenure as governor somewhere. It's something that happens significantly after the fact. Is it something that voters will start to see the results of? Um, I think especially on some of the, like you said, the soft uh, infrastructure, those are some, you know, payments uh, for something like child care could happen very much quicker. But even so, you know, traditionally, politicians love to have, you know, a press conference when the bill passes, a press conference when the money is appropriated, a press conference and an event when they uh, cut the ribbon on, on beginning the construction, and then, you know, over and over again. So, you know, yes, it doesn't sort of start producing economic results right away, but it can start producing uh, positive publicity for Biden and for every, you know, everybody who votes for it very quickly. When, from a political science lens, and I think about you stepping into the classroom and teaching, uh, how are you seeing so far Biden's first term here? You know, he's, he's, as you would expect, he is competent. He knows what he's doing. He's an experienced uh, Washington hand. He's been, because he was vice president for eight years, and um, he knows how the White House runs, he knows how agencies run, and because the Democrats were in office only four years ago, they were ready to take over. So, you know, less so how is Biden doing and more how, you know, we, we have partisan presidencies these days. We have, what matters is the, the party much more so mm. than the individual, unless the individual happens to be, say, Donald Trump. <laughs> right. But, you know, Biden is sort of functioning as um, a typical Democrat, and he's doing what, you know, any Democrat who was elected, or most Democrats who were elected coming into, you know, with this Democratic Party would have done. What I do think is that he's done a pretty good job of, you know, staffing up. He's, uh, his White House seems to be uh, running pretty efficiently. Pretty, he has experienced people. You know, the congressional negotiators were, uh, by all accounts, did a good job on this one. So uh, he has all that going for him. Again, more of a party thing than an individual thing. Is it the Biden of uh, who, who spent most of his life in the Senate? Is that the Biden who we saw in the background here, uh, actually negotiating this, or is this the result of uh, look uh, savvy people behind the scenes on Biden's team? I don't mean to be talking down Biden. I think that the case is that for 
you know, the same was true of Barack Obama. The same was yeah. true for George W. Bush. It's really a team effort. Biden certainly taking the lead, you know, calling the shots in terms of final decisions, but that his job is to sort of get the things in place and to, you know, implement the party agenda as best he can. And I think that, you know, the Democratic Party was in fairly good shape coming into his presidency, as opposed to, say, Bill Clinton, who was a very talented politician, mm. but he took office after the Democrats had been out of office for 12 years, after, you know, the previous one was Jimmy Carter, who everybody agreed was terrible. Right. He had to sort of start up from scratch. Biden, in many cases, is just promoting, you know, the assistant from the last administration to be the principal of this administration. All right. Listen, going to leave it there. Hey, good column, John. Jonathan, thank you so much. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Jonathan uh, Bernstein covers and writes about politics and policy and has taught political science at the University of Texas at San Antonio and more joining us uh, on the phone from San Antonio. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Let's talk a little bit about cryptocurrency and blockchain. Taking a look at the price right now of Bitcoin, it's at $32,000, 300 and some change down, uh, just about $2,500 today. Uh, joining us now is Chainalysis co-founder and CEO, Michael Groninger. Groninger, excuse me, Michael, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, company tapped another $100 million. Uh, valuation has jumped to $4.2 billion from $2 billion just back in March, a ton of interest. Uh, what was the story that you told investors in this latest round of funding? Thanks, yeah. So, so when I look at, at the crypto industry, and you look seeing the crypto industry as well, it's clearly been booming over the last, uh, last year or so. And uh, what has become clear is that this is a mega trend. It's growing, crypto is going to eat the world of finance, just as software ate the, the, the rest of the world. And, um, what we told as a story and what is like the core of what we are doing is data. So we are building out a data platform for crypto. And what we've been doing so far has been helping the public sector in keeping the world safe uh, for any crime in crypto. We've been helping private companies with doing their compliance. And now we are moving into what I would call financial data analytics or market intel using data to actually gain more opportunities in crypto than before. It is a very cool firm that you are running. It's a blockchain tracking and forensic firm. Your clients are government investigators, crypto exchanges, financial institutions. What's going to be the bigger part of your business? Is it ferreting out uh, crypto situations that need to be investigated? Or is it about, you know, giving investors clues on when to buy or sell cryptocurrency? So I think right now we are, we are clearly uh, our biggest customer base today and biggest revenue we have today is the public sector. Uh, the public sector was like had an urgent need to be able to trace cryptocurrencies to basically clean up the early industry of crypto. But also we've seen like big ransomware attacks alone this mm -hmm. year. We traced more than $100 million in that. So long term is going to be uh, the, the private sector. And we are seeing that growing tremendously right now. And the public sector is growing 100%. The other one will outgrow that pretty fast. What specifically, when you talk about the financial sector, is just the amount of activity of people investing in various cryptocurrencies? How do you see it? Where is, where is it that, you know, what are the specific ways that you anticipate you'll be making money? So in, in, uh, in crypto, in the crypto trading, if, if you trade cryptocurrencies, if you want to enter that game, uh, you are, as a financial institution, as an, as an investor, you want to understand what you are 
risks and opportunities are. You want to understand what could happen in crypto tomorrow. What are, what are the flaws in the market currently? What is potential movement of the price? Is it retail-driven right now, or is it institutional-driven? You want to understand that when you model out your different products that you're going to offer to retail. So that could be loans, it could be other things that you're offering, asset managed institution, and for all of that, you need data, and that's what we saw. Because this is so new, and it's so, it's so new to so many people, and so many people don't necessarily understand the implications around blockchain and don't understand the intricacies of cryptocurrency, do you get concerned when you see headlines like Bitcoin falling 50% in a matter of weeks uh, that people will lose interest because of volatility? So I've been in crypto for 10 years, and I've seen these, uh, these, like, uh, this high volatility and I've also seen people saying Bitcoin is dead a million times. It doesn't really scare me. I think what we're actually seeing is that this trend of high volatility, it's tied to a 24-7 trading culture where retail has suddenly a high mm. uh, part of that. And we see that in Robinhood with GameStop, right? It's kind of crypto in the mainstream trading world, just with, with, with the normal shares. So I say that I'm not concerned. I actually think everything is going in that direction. Is it a good thing that, that it, there's so much retail activity, that, that Robinhood traders can have such easy access to trading crypto? And look, 24-7, they can do it. I think it's amazing. It's basically enabling the entire world to get access to financial instruments that we never dreamt that a retail investor would have access to before. So I think it's great. It's like it's democratizing finance. You talked about data that's going to be so useful uh, when it comes to the cryptocurrency world. What kind of data specifically? What's the data that you're gathering that is going to be so important and crucial to your financial clients down the road? So the, the blockchain is unique, and all the blockchains, Ethereum, Bitcoin, and so on, they're unique in its only public uh, transaction system where all the transactions are public. So you can see every single transaction. It doesn't mean it's easy to understand. What we are able to do is we can build personas from a series and groups of transactions, and those personas indicate certain behaviors, and from those behaviors, we can categorize them and say something about what is happening in, in the market right now. We can say something about compliance and risk and criminal activity, but we can also say something about what is the sentiment right now? What is happening? What are people doing? Are big investors trying to huddle uh, more cryptocurrencies? Are they cashing? So we can see those things on the blockchain data. And we're able to do that because we have amassed a lot of data around who's who over time. All right. So Tim and I are like, wait, wait, yeah. I want to go. I want to go. But I do wonder, because I think about a guest we had earlier this week who said it's not the digital cryptocurrency world. It's not going to be the currencies we're talking about today. It's going to be something different down the road. Do you agree? I think I mean, there are thousands out there right now, right? Yeah. We know it's going to filter out. Yeah. It, yeah, well, something will filter out. But also, I actually think what, what is happening is that you will consolidate uh, what I would call a little handful of blockchains, but the number of tokens will grow a thousand x from now. You will have a token that represents your house. You will have a token that represents housing in Florida. You will have a token that represents other things. And there'll be so many various like tokens. There'll be tokens for, for shoes, for for items in games, everything. So I would say that's growing, but the number of blockchains will get, become smaller. Hmm. 
Hmm. Back to Carol's question about data, because you shared so many ideas of, of the type of conclusions that this data can can provide analysts, investors. Uh, give me an example of sentiment right now. Give me an example of what you've been able to find by tapping into this data. Yeah, so when we look at the, when we look at like what happened over the last half year or so, where we saw very big uh, big institutional investors entering the crypto uh, the crypto space. We've seen where they have bought their cryptocurrency. We've seen like what is the average price that a micro strategy, Tesla, uh, that, that Square have bought their cryptocurrencies at. And that builds a flow into the market. It basically say like either they should really turn around and say take a huge loss and sell it all, or they're going to defend that. And then when we look at the blockchain, we actually see that there is a buying that happens when we get down to where we are right now in price then institutional investors that got in at a higher price starts to buy because it actually still makes the average price for Bitcoin smaller. And if the long-term believer is that this is like going to go to 100K and, and above, then, then it's a good decision. All right, Doug Krisner, thank you so much. Just about 18 minutes left in today's trading session. We want to go to it and talk a little bit about the markets. Christian Manufo, he is uh, Chief Investment Officer at Liberty Street Advisors, Portfolio Manager of the Private Shares Fund. He joins us on the phone from New York City. I believe it's Manufo, so forgive me, Christian. Uh, I want to make sure we've got it right. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having us on, and thanks for correcting it. You bet. Uh, we like to get it right. So talk to us about getting it right in the markets right now, because, you know, it's easy when things are really, really bad to kind of know what's going on. It's easy when things are really, really good. But when we're kind of in this middle area where we've got Fed speakers all saying, to some extent, different things, it's hard. and economic data points telling us different things about the outcome um, or the outlook, it's hard to kind of figure out exactly what's the right play, although investors seem to be <laughs> pretty much buying into the recovery trade today. Yeah, they sure are. Yeah, and our, our focus is primarily on the, on the private markets as well. And there's typically a bit of a lag effect we see when we have public market activity and macro events and the way in which they impact the private markets. But everyone is keeping a close eye on all these critical macro events that you point out. You know, from a private market standpoint, and particularly as it relates to late-stage venture and growth companies, we continue to be pleased with how resilient uh, this ecosystem has been uh, throughout this period while waiting for more transparency, to your point, on how things really are going to develop over the coming months and quarters. You know, we continue seeing significant capital invested in this asset class. Most of the companies, I think, whether they're public or private, are really trying to balance managing high growth, but also their margins um, to maximize profitability where they can. And in the private markets, we continue seeing very strong exit activity. The public market clearly continues to support these companies. I think we would all agree well, that some of the activity got out of hand. Yeah. Um, well, healthy. look, I think that a lot of people would argue, wait a second, what happened with SPACs over the last year has really been a boon for Look, any company that's private right now that's that's looking for an infusion of capital and looking to go public but not do an IPO, I'm wondering how SPACs have, have changed the game for, for someone like you. Yeah, they certainly have. You know, there's two elements to the equation. Part of it is that SPACs and pipes in parallel, to some degree, have actually pulled forward what typically would have been a more protracted exit event for these private companies. And so, you know, what many of us call pre-IPO financings in some situations, have been replaced by the SPACs and IPOs, which can create more competition 
Uh, we're also seeing more activity amongst public investors and what we call crossover investors, so public-private guys getting involved in private markets earlier to stake a claim in these companies. And I think SPACs had a major impact in that as well. And, you know, we're seeing... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, so you think SPACs are a good thing? Net-net, we do. In order to provide this ecosystem with more access to capital and more access to liquidity paths, we do think it's a net positive. Right. But we absolutely also think that the rising tide lifted all ships, and some of them will sink. Because I... so, you know... because yeah, I don't, and yeah. forgive me, I, I know, because there's a lot of controversy, I, th- I feel like, about SPACs at this point, or not me, but just our reporting. You've certainly seen it in the SPAC, if you look at some of the indexes, the performance. Is there, though, the concern, Christian, that there's a lot of money coming from a lot of different places, SPACs included, chasing, you know, few ideas, and that's going to create distortion in the markets, and that's going to create problems later on, or there's going to be some significant fallout? Yeah, what, what we would agree with is the fact that not all of these are going to work out. And some of these companies in particular that went out with very little, if any, revenue off of five to seven year forward looking projections, which is incredibly difficult to underwrite for most investors, we think those are the ones that are the most vulnerable to get pullbacks. And I think you see some of those SPACs trading uh, below the $10 mark. But there's a lot of companies that have much more attractive metrics and growth and, and and maturity that are still deciding to go down the SPAC path for a variety of reasons. And so... Look, we don't think it's going to be the only solution, but having an additional option in addition to traditional IPOs, which many of agree would historically have left a lot of chips on the table for investors, um, as well as direct offerings, direct private offerings, we think it's nice to have more optionality for the ecosystem. Well, people who listen to this frequently know that this is something I bring up all the time. The idea that SPACs are nothing new. And that they've been around for years, but they're certainly in vogue and, and, and really having a moment right now. Do you think they're here to stay or do you think that increased regulatory scrutiny, uh, coupled with the idea that investors you know, might become more skeptical of them if they don't produce results, will cause them to decline in interest? Yeah, time will, time will tell. Our view is that we do believe they will be a permanent fixture. Now, whether or not they're going to continue at these types of rates, I think that's a much harder question to answer right now. But they are solving for some issues in terms of the the lack of IPOs to really focus on future types of projections where companies actually have legitimate projections you can underwrite and doing it in a much more time-efficient uh, time manner, there are benefits to that. There's also benefits, many would argue, to direct offerings and listings. Um, and as I said, there's some interesting data that shows if you look at venture-backed public offerings over the past couple of decades, there's been a sig- pretty significant pop on the first day that these companies trade that existing investors were not very pleased with because it meant that they gave up more of their business, right, at a lower valuation. And so SPACs, to some degree, and direct listings are trying to more accurately price them. They're not going to get it right every time. But, but we do see value in SPACs being in the market for a longer period of time. So when it comes to the unicorns that are out there, potential unicorns that are out there, you know, there's a lot of innovation, Christian, going on. We've talked to Kathy Wood, uh, who has really given a lot of attention to the disruptive and innovation space. Whether you agree with her or not, she definitely has created a conversation and, and really fed into investor demand for people looking for disruptors. And we are seeing that certainly play out in our world among the companies that are out there, the types of industries, where do you find the best opportunities right now? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. And we're seeing innovation in areas that you may not typically correlate with with innovation, things ranging from 
you know, things like agritech, right, agricultural technology. Mm-hmm. We're seeing fantastic That's a huge area, right? And really, I think, just at the cusp. It really is. And we're very nascent in that market and looking at things from ranging from better sustainability to carbon utilization to water and soil um, um, uh, preservation, using more direct and non-invasive type of chemicals and microbiomes to mm-hmm. replace what can be very contaminated pesticides. So we, and, and then using the data across the farming industry to help farmers as well uh, to increase their business efficiency directly with the end consumer. So we're seeing a lot of innovation there. Again, not an area you might typically think of. Supply chains, which I think we're all looking at dealing with bottlenecks, there's a lot of interesting technology and innovation that's being applied to supply chains, right. transportation, right, all, all sorts of logistical management. And then everything that we know, right, ranging from cybersecurity to fintech to education technologies. There's a lot of innovation that we continue to focus on. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.